Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And just before we get started with the sermon this morning, I just wanted to kind of give an announcement as to um, what's going to be happening for next week. So um, next week, August 23rd, uh, we are not going to require registration for the outdoor services. So at this point, we have a, a kind of a firm handle on kind of the numbers that have been coming. Our capacity still have plenty of capacity on the front lawn. So uh, for next week, uh, we, we will not require you to register. There won't be an email going out tomorrow morning for you to register, uh, but we will communicate what services are going to be on the lawn. Is it going to be family worship service in the morning, evening worship service um, um, at night? Um, uh, so we, we will communicate what services will be on the lawn, but you will not be required to register um, just when, when we're there, we'll take attendance and kind of on our end uh, have, have an awareness of who's there in case we need to contact that group for whatever reason in the future. Um, but just uh, wanted to, we, we appreciate your guys uh, complying with registering and um, really seeing that through. And so just letting you know that um, at least we're going to try this week without registering and we're comfortable with that. Um, and, and if and when, Lord willing, we are able to come back indoors at some point, we're not ready to put any dates around that yet, um, but we will require registration for that once we go back indoors again, uh, but just want to uh, start with that. Next week, no registration required for the lawn services. Uh, would love for you guys to uh, keep coming out to those. Well, uh, for me, it's, it, you know, it's very interesting how how the, uh, the idea of memory works, um, how we have all these days in our life, depending on how old you are, that uh, you have experienced, and, and yet there's always just a select few that you can say, I really remember that. And, and typically it's, the, it's kind of the, the really good days and, and the really bad days that seem to be the most memorable. Well, one day I am confident that I will remember for the rest of my life is Wednesday, March 11th. 2020. That day and, and certainly the days um, surrounding it, uh, in, in fact just days before on March 8th we had our, um, our last Sunday gathering inside this building. Thinking back on that day, we knew at that point that something was brewing. Uh, if you recall, we kind of removed our greeting time in that Sunday. It was a little bit awkward, um, but we still had over, well over 300 people in the building that day. Um, we had a newcomer's luncheon after the service with 50 people who had just started coming in January and February uh, at a service in Fellowship Hall downstairs. Um, uh, and then moved to March 10th, which was a Tuesday. Uh, we had our uh, a staff meeting where, where we kind of spent maybe 15 minutes or so kind of talking about just everything that seemed to be going on, but there was so much that was unknown. We didn't really know the name of it. We're like, it's a, okay, so it's, it, it's coronavirus, not, not coronavirus, not co okay, coronavirus, right? We're just getting the vocabulary down. Um, I remember somebody, not sure exactly who, but somebody on staff even just kind of put the question forward. Hey, uh, do you think we'd actually get to a place where we'd cancel a Sunday? Where, where, where we actually wouldn't have a service in the building? I mean, do you think we'd get to that point? And, 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 and kind of just the, the group uh, mentality at that point was like, no, no, we're not going to get to that point. It won't get that bad. And then March 11th, I remember it was a Wednesday evening. I was sitting in our living room. The kids were in bed. Um, 
and was sitting in there with Rochelle, and um, we had the NBA game on or something, and I remember kind of checking Twitter, and it was a span, it felt like just like a few minutes, but all of a sudden, uh, do you remember this? Um, Tom Hanks and his wife has tested positive for the coronavirus. And, 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 then, and then there was the uh, announcement that NBA player Rudy Gobert had tested positive for the coronavirus in the locker room right before a game of a jam-packed arena in a nationally televised NBA game. In the matter of moments, NBA suspends their season, MLB suspends their spring training, NHL suspends their season, the NCAA cancels the March Madness tournament. And then that night, I think it was about 9 o'clock, the president gave the somber speech from the Oval Office about an hour later. And that was a moment where I remember just sitting there, exactly where I was sitting, how I was facing the TV, and just thinking, oh man, the world's changed. The world's changed. The next day, we indeed canceled our Sunday service for that March 15th. A couple days later, the schools all shut down. And then that Saturday, March 14th, I got an email from the mayor of Ridgewood saying that down at Valley Hospital, just a few blocks down the road, we have five patients who have tested positive for the coronavirus. And off we went. Um, but honestly, still at that point, didn't really have a full picture of what was going on. If you, if you recall, all the way back at that time, they had said, hey, we're just going to do this for two weeks. We're just going to shut everything down for two weeks. We're going to wait, and then we'll restart everything at the end of March. That was five months ago. In some ways, we know a lot more than we did in uh, the month of March, and yet in other ways, it seems there's still so much we just don't know. But at some point between that day of Wednesday, March 11th, to where we stand now in mid-August, as a church leadership, we uh, shifted our mentality from waiting to restart to working to reset. Every year, if you're new to Grace Church, um, we, we do a vision series typically in the fall, typically right around after Labor Day. Uh, we're doing it a little bit earlier this year. And, and it's, it's basically this kind of annual family talk. It, it's this kind of checkup um, of just kind of who we are, where we are, um, affirm and clarify some things we're doing, some things we're not doing. And, and then kind of just every fall kind of start this kind of... Um, September to June uh, year with this fresh sense of purpose and vision and mission. And this year, 2020, the title of our vision is Reset. Because at least two things are true about what has been happening over these last five months. That it has been unbelievably challenging. And it has presented an unbelievable opportunity for the church. This is where we kind of step back. That's part of reset. Kind of just step back and kind of take a lay of the land. And when we kind of need to know and remind ourselves that every challenge we face, including a global pandemic, God has sovereignly allowed to happen 
And with every challenge comes with it an opportunity to glorify His name in the midst of that challenge, regardless of where it leads. Like this, this is the promise to believers. This is the promise to us as a church that there is no such thing, hear me, there is no such thing as a meaningless trial in your life. There is no such thing as um, pointless suffering. But with every challenge we face, there's an opportunity to rejoice and grow and be strengthened because of it. Uh, last week, and what ended up just being a very timely message, kind of ushering us into this reset series, uh, Juan Garcia preached from Daniel chapter 3. Uh, those three men being thrown into the fiery furnace. And before they were thrown in, they said the powerful statement, I believe God can save us. I believe God will save us. And even if he doesn't, he's still good. And we're going to trust him. You see, all trials in life expose what we truly believe deep down about God, about ourselves, and about the world around us. And so I believe it is so vital for us as a church in this time to just say together, we're not just waiting and wasting time waiting for a restart, but we are seizing the opportunity to reset I think about the early church in the book of Acts after Jesus died and, um, and, and, and kind of ascended into heaven. He said uh, that, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And they're all kind of hiding in an upper room. Do you remember? They were just kind of afraid. And they were, just, just, they were afraid of the world around them, of, of what it meant for them, and what was coming. And they were, they were waiting. They were waiting for something to happen. And they were fearful. And yet, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, something changed by the power of the Spirit. They went from waiting to working. The circumstances in the world did not change around them, but they changed in that moment. Their mentality shifted in that moment from waiting to working. From a restart to a reset. And so as we think about these past five months, and you look back on them, here's what I probably know, because I know it's been true for me. Uh, there's been things in these last five months that I regret. There's been times that I've blown it. As a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as, as a partner in gospel ministry, things that I look back and go, man, I just wish I did that differently. I, I just wish I, I didn't go about it that way. We've all blown it in some way in these last five months. And we can't change the past. But we can together collectively say, hey, we're not just waiting to restart. As a church, we're working to reset. And we want to take advantage of what I think has been an unprecedented opportunity for the church to affirm, strengthen, and clarify who we are and why we do what we do. Nobody asked for a global pandemic in 2020 but it's here. And so what are we going to do in this time? Jesus says in John chapter 5 that my Father is working until now, and I am working. And so I'm just asking you, in the midst of a really big challenge for us, do you believe that God is still at work? Can I get one amen in the living room out there? Do you believe He's still working in your life? Do you believe He's still working in the life of Grace Church? 
So yeah, reset. Today we start what will be a four-week family talk. Not just waiting to restart, working to reset. Will you join with me in Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to read the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if we're going to talk about a reset, uh, kind of again, just taking a step back and taking a fresh look at the church and, and, and our role in that, we, we must start with affirming and laying the foundation of who we are. So before we rush to the point of, okay, what should we be doing? Guys, uh, let's go. We're the church. Let's get to work. What should we do? It's a good question to ask, but we can't start there. We cannot understand the work of the church before we affirm and nail down the nature of the church. Can't move to the what and the how before we identify the who. Thinking about this, you know, what came to mind was um, uh, growing up, I was always a big fan of the Jason Bourne movies. And, and the first movie was called The Bourne Identity. And if you haven't seen it or don't know about it, the, the premise of these films is this uh, CIA uh, assassin whose memory was wiped out in an accident. And early in the movie, he's frustrated that he knows um, how to do all these different things but it's meaningless because he doesn't know who he is. So uh, he, he's sitting in a, a diner a, across from a woman that he met, and this is what he says. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the great truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for half a mile before my hand starts shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? It would be a tragedy to know what kind of church things that church people are supposed to do without knowing who we are and why we're here. So if we're going to talk about reset, this is where we start. Many of you know the structure of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's uh, six chapters. Uh, the first half is the uh, kind of heavy on theological doctrine. And then the back half, beginning with chapter four, contains theological application. And the first three verses of chapter four, he's going to kind of give these, uh, these commands right out of the gate, these plural commands to the church, urging humility and patience and unity and peace the kind of virtues that describe a healthy church. But then he grounds those commands in verses 4 through 6, which is what we're going to focus our time on this morning. Meaning that he never gives a command to a church to do something or to be something without also providing the reason why they can obey those commands. So verses 1 through 3, church, act like this. 
verses 4 through 6. This is why you can act like this. Because this is who you are. And then he gives seven one statements. Now we're just going to unpack this morning in order to answer the question, church, who are we? Starting with number one. We are one body. One body. So the specific body of believers that Paul is writing to in this letter is located in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, In the first century, it was known as Asia Minor. And it was the third largest city in the vast Roman Empire. And it was this kind of bustling port city. And so you had merchants and cargo vessels that were docked there from all around the empire, transporting people and goods, making Ephesus, uh, in all likelihood, the most multi-ethnic city in the world at this time. And so maybe uh, I'm just a little bit biased, but as you really read historically about Ephesus, you can't help but make the parallel between uh, that ancient city and what is now New York City, the, the center of diversity of commerce, of kind of mixed cultures, which means that the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to in all likelihood reflected this diversity, both Jew and Gentile all different kinds of economic profiles. We know from later in the letter, there was both masters and bondservants in the same congregation. Different spiritual backgrounds. And yet, he starts with saying, you are one singular body, diverse in its parts, but unified in its body. This is the picture of the church. That, that we would see uh, the diversity in one another, in all the different demographics we can think of, and yet see ourselves as one singular body. That, that, that we don't want just diversity, because as I heard a pastor say on a podcast this past week, um, slave plantations in the South were diverse places, but they were not unified. The church is diverse, but unified. A unified is a group of people with a common existence pursuing a common purpose for a common good. To see and treat others as if they are of the same body. In God's design, he provides a, kind of a picture of a church as a way to explain what the church should be like and act like with these kind of familiar uh, images that we know and experience every single day, like our bodies. That nobody would look at their arm on one end and and, and their foot on the other end and say uh, that those are the same things. Clearly, an arm and a foot are different. They look different. They feel different. They act different. But my arm is as much as a part of the body as my foot. And a unified body cares for itself and all its different parts. Let me illustrate it like this. Um, so really, ever since the quarantine in March, uh, like I think a lot of families and people, uh, we have walked as a family around our neighborhoods more than we ever had before. Like it became the highlight of our day, especially the peak quarantine. Like, hey, we're going for the walk. And everybody in the house just starts getting fired up. Like, it's time for the walk. And we would go around and here's what we grew to find very quickly with walking with kids, especially a five-year-old and a three-year-old. 
that we are averaging about one skinned knee per week on a good week, right? Falling off the curb, tripping over their own feet, tripping over one another's feet, tripping off the stroller. They found new creative ways every single week to skin their knees. But it was fascinating what the body does all on its own in a skinned knee. Do you know what happens? Let me tell you what happens. There's special blood cells called platelets that spring into action. And, and, they, and they rush to the area and they begin to stick together as fast as they can like glue to, at the cut, forming a blood clot to keep it from bleeding. Once that's done, in time, the clot starts to dry out and get hard, forming a scab. And once that scab forms, under the scab, skin cells are hard at work to form new skin, while white blood cells rush to that part of the body to fight off the area from any germs that have gotten into the cut, while the skin cells are making new skin. Eventually, if you can resist picking the scab, oh, it's so hard to resist picking the scab, but you should, because once it falls off on its own, what's revealed under it is newly furnished skin. And you know what? You don't tell your body to do anything. It just does it. Different parts, unified, one purpose, looking out for itself. Then God is awesome. How God designs the body, that's one small example, simple example of how awesome the human body is, even in its fallen state. I mean, who would have thought that a skinned knee could lead you to worship him? But this is a picture of the church as a body. Diverse in background and gifting, yet unified in purpose. Serving with and for one another for the glory of God. Think about this. Of all the body, bodies of people that you're a part of in this world, your work, your family, your friends, your, uh, your, your gym buddies, whatever community you have, the church body is the only body of people that will last for eternity. We are one body. Number two, we are one spirit. Paul here is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Uh, so this summer, uh, um, as some of you know, on our Grace Extended podcast, uh, Steve and I are doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And the first episode of that series just answered the simple question, who is the Holy Spirit? In short, he is the rendering presence of God in people and in the church. So the Holy Spirit indwells and renders the presence of God in you when you place your faith in Christ. And the Spirit uh, indwells and renders the presence of God in us as a church. Meaning that we as a church have one Spirit And that the Holy Spirit is the origin of all this. He is the maker of all of this. He is the one true Spirit in the world that is producing Christ-likeness in His people. In this world, that I think we might know now a little bit more than we knew five months ago, is full of spiritual warfare. All of it. Let us not get duped in the suburbs into thinking that there's not a spiritual war around you at all times. Don't get caught sleepwalking through the monotony of life. That, uh, just, just know that life is a daily battle to, to put on the old self and to put on the new self. And there's no such thing as a normal day in the kingdom of God. Amen? 
Ephesus was a clash of worldviews, of spiritual realms and beliefs. But you know what? The year 2020 is not nearly as modern or progressive or unique as we often think it is. It's actually just a repackaged version of what the world has always been. Secularism and progressivism is as much of a religion as Christianity is. Secularism has a doctrine that it adheres to. It has gods that it serves. It draws lines of right and wrong. So, so don't get swept up into thinking that 2020, that we are more progressive or we're further along than those in the past. Really, it's just a repackaged version of history. And in the church, we have one spirit that binds us together. Number three, we have one hope. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Earlier in chapter two of Ephesians, Paul wrote uh, to the church to remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. At one time you had no hope without God in the world. All hope outside of Jesus Christ is false hope. At its core, it ends up being just a coping mechanism. It's full of uncertainty and angst. And only in Christ, God has infused hope into our lives, the kind of hope that is unbreakable, no matter what this world brings. And that hope, I think, gets exposed and becomes most clear to us in the midst of suffering and difficult seasons. The reason why I think this is an unprecedented opportunity for the church that we have not experienced in our personal lifetimes, the opportunity to shine the light of Christ, is because the world has never felt so hopeless as it does right now. And only the light of Christ can infuse a hope into the lives of people that are separated from Christ. 20th century missionary Leslie Newbegin said this, quote, A community of people that, in the midst of all the pain and sorrow and wickedness of the world, is continually praising God, is the first obvious result of living by another story than the one our world lives by. Church, be encouraged this morning that we are living by another story. A story that is rooted in the hope of Christ that cannot be altered by a pandemic. A hope that outshines the darkness. And when our hope is rooted there as a community, when we reset our focus on that, we stand strong. Unfortunately, if, if, if you, like me, kind of have a really kind of keen observation on the state of the church across the country, our church, excuse me, not our church, but the church in our country seems unfortunately more divided, more divided now than it was before March, reflecting the hopelessness in the world. This pandemic has exposed some things in the church across this country. Namely this, that what has been exposed is that what held many churches together 
was an ideology, not a theology. Where political and social preferences have been valued and held onto tighter over and above theological and spiritual hope. And when that happens, churches look hopeless. And let it be for us, let it continue to be for us that our hope is firmly attached to the hope of Jesus Christ who has come into the world to save sinners. Of which we once were. We were alienated from Christ until His hope was given to us. And I have been very encouraged over the last five months by the unity and humility and patience of our church. Unless I'm missing it and just nobody's really telling me that it's not there, but it seems that we're very much on the same page, that we are being patient yet persistent. We've been encouraged as our leadership of how generous the church has continued to be with their time, with their treasure, uh, continually giving and supporting the ministry, even in the midst of not gathering like we normally do. Our staff and our elders have been um, uh, unified. It's not to mean there hasn't been areas of tension or things we need to kind of work through like there always is, but we're just on the same page. And as I talk to pastors and hear from other pastors and read about um, other churches across the world, that's not the norm right now. Because it's really hard and it's really challenging to understand that your hope is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and not some other political or social or moral reason. Christ Church, let us be rooted in the gospel. That is who we are, a people with one hope. Number four, one Lord. If you were to be asked the question, um, hey, what's the difference between the church and the world? What would you say? What is the difference between the church and the world? Give it to me in a line. The church is kind and the world is mean? No. Uh, the church is generous and the world is cheap? No. The church loves others and the world doesn't? No. Now hear me, I hope the church and our church is full of kind and generous and loving people, but that's not the foundational dividing line between the church and the world. So what is it? Here it is in a single phrase. Jesus Christ is Lord. The church confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-5, through 5, a letter that he wrote likely while he was staying in the city of Ephesus, writes this, quote, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the dividing line of all of history. Those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and those who don't. And in the church, we seek to know Jesus, right? Not just know about Him, not just know facts about Him, but to know Him, which is to say to love Him and to affirm that He is our Savior and our Lord. And when Paul writes here, one Lord... He's saying not only that Jesus Christ is Lord, but nothing else is. 
for the church of Ephesus that separated them from church, um, separated them from the Roman Empire, which expected its people to claim and affirm that Caesar is Lord. And it also separated the church uh, from the Jews, which denied that Jesus is Lord. And so this confession could cost you your life in Ephesus. We know it did for Paul, who was imprisoned writing this letter for that very reason. Number five, one faith. Here, Paul seems to be using the word faith in a way to describe the essential truths that we share in the body of Christ. I think what Paul is describing here is what he um, describes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 of, of that which is of first importance, referring to the gospel which is preached, that people respond to in faith. The gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to the twelve. The gospel contains the essential doctrines of the church that we ascribe to. That they're, um, and I think in the church today, um, and this is not just starting in 2020, I think it's been increasingly moving this direction, there is an increasingly growing fear to lay a claim to an exclusive faith. I think especially with each generation, that challenge to affirm sound doctrine seems to be getting harder and harder. Um, I know uh, young adults and teens and, and even growing younger in elementary school, they're having these kind of questions popping up. Why does it have to be so exclusive, though? Why is this the one true faith? And everything else seems to be wrong. That's, that, that, doesn't, that seems off. That seems unloving. It seems intolerant. Can't we just keep it more general? And out of that mentality has, I think, grown a whole new set of faith and doctrine that many people in the church are ascribing to, not just in the quote-unquote world, but inside the church. A few years ago, and I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth bringing up, I think it's even more true now when it was first written. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith. He came up with the phrase, moralistic, therapeutic deism to define the majority view of people in America. Here's its five-point doctrine. I'll have it on the screen. Number one, a God exists and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be nice, fair, and good to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is, describes what I think is the biggest religion in the world, the kind of spiritual but not religious religion. A belief in a God somewhere out there, a God that is primarily there to comfort me when I need it and to help me become a good person so I go to heaven. It's a very self-centered view of God and faith, and I think it is far more dangerous to the church today than atheism is. But we affirm in sound doctrine, we affirm that is of what is first important in the gospel, that we have one faith and unity 
in that essential doctrine. Let's keep going. Two more. Number six. One, baptism. This could mean the common experience of a believer's baptism that we ought to have, that believers are called to, when the New Testament continually says, repent and be baptized. Baptism as an outward expression of an inward faith that we ought to share. But beyond that, I think it signifies the picture that comes with baptism, that in Christ we are united in His death, as pictured by being immersed under the water. And then we rise with Christ to new life out of the water through faith in Him. It's called union with Christ. It's the most comforting and often neglected doctrine in the Christian faith. That we are generally united with Christ and reconciled to God. Fully restored in His image as He created us to be. Adopted into His eternal family. Which leads finally to number seven. One God and Father of all. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church, when we talk about vision and needing to reset our focus, we start with the focus on the glory of God. And so our vision is to glorify God at its foundation because that is the only vision a true church can have. And we are covenanted together as sisters and brothers with one Father, our all in all. This is who we are. And our nature as a church is a, is a reflection of God Himself. You, you might have noticed as we walk through this passage that each member of the Trinity is present. The Spirit, Jesus Christ is Lord, and the Father who is over all. One God in three persons who is head over one body with many parts. The next three weeks we will dig into and get very applicational into um, what are we called to do as we reset as a church? What are, what are we called to do or not do? But for now, reset begins with clarifying the foundational truth. Grace Church, we are one body formed by one Spirit who have one hope in one Lord with one faith united by one baptism under one God and Father of all. On Wednesday, March 11th, I sat in my living room and I thought to myself, the world's changed. And while honestly it's been a constant roller coaster of emotions ever since that day five months ago, Here's where I want to land. In a time where I wonder if the world has lost its mind. If the trajectory of the things is leading to further disaster. If the uncertainty and of the future and the stress and the constant hate and politics and injustice and wickedness of this world is just too much to bear. I want to remember that God's got this. 
And so the question that I will try to ask each day when I wake up is not, God, when will you put an end to this so we can restart? But rather, I'll reset and ask, God, how can I and how can we as a church glorify your name in the midst of this? Because I read the end of this book, and I know what the final couple of verses say in our Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, that he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it consistently and routinely resets our focus on you, lifts our eyes to you, Lord, where we don't need to neglect the real challenges and suffering and trials that we face in this world, but that we understand that even those are sovereignly under your care and that you can use them to grow us, strengthen us, no matter where it leads our path. And so, Father, I pray that over these next four weeks as we talk, Lord, and we dig into your word together, that you would allow our light to shine brighter at Grace Church than it has ever shone before. And let it be for your glory and not ours. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.